Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Edward Renahan, the author of Deliberate Evil, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Daniel Webster, and the 1830 Murder of a Salem Slave Trader. He's written seven books under his own name and has ghostwritten dozens more. Thanks so much for being here, Mr. Renahan. Oh, thank you for having me. Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity that promotes children's literacy. To this day, when you walk through Salem, Massachusetts, you aren't sure you're still in the present. The shapes of the houses, the people in period dress, the knowledge that every high school kid studies the Salem witch trials. Other than the prices, <laughs> you feel the weight of history as you take your walking tour. Edward Redahan argues that for all we know about Salem, we've been deprived of a riveting story that happened there for almost two centuries now. Joseph White was a wealthy slave trader who was killed by other well-to-do folks. At least that's how it seems. The intrigue captured the attention of those alive back then, but at least until Ed's book, it did not capture the attention of those alive today. So, Edward, why was this buried for so long, and was it done purposely or not? It absolutely was done purposely. The families involved were among the richest in the country at the time. Very powerful Eastern Seaboard ship owners uh, with great connections even then and even better connections down through the years leading to the present day. The uh, uh, Joseph White himself uh, left a very, very large fortune that uh, has persist persisted uh, to this day and uh, has many influential uh, descendants. The two primary actors in the murder, uh, Dick Crowninshield and his brother George Crowninshield, came from one of Salem's very richest, most well-connected families. They had uh, an uncle who at the time of the murder was the Secretary of the Navy. Uh, uh, they, uh, uh, another uncle, George Crowninshield Sr., uh, had built and sailed around the world in America's first great pleasure yacht, a magnificent vessel that became world famous. Uh, called Cleopatra's Barge. And when the family was done with it, when the Crown and Shield family was done with it, they wound up selling it to be the royal yacht of the uh, Crown family of Hawaii. So that'll give you an idea of how magnificent it was. And um, uh, down through the years, uh, these families who have uh, been major players in American political and social and economic life through many, many decades have uh, made a, a firm practice of uh, keeping this story uh, out of the history books and out of the limelight. Uh, 
uh, one of the uh, uh, descendants of the Crown and Shield family uh, in the mid 20th century was this woman, Louise Dupont Crown and Shield, who was a, a, a uh, ski on of both the Dupont family and the Crown and Shields, obviously. And she was a major benefactress of the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem. And the Peabody Essex Museum owns the mansion in which the murder uh, took place. It owns the home of the Crown and Shield clan, the home of the murderers. Um, and it owns um, uh, many artifacts of the murder. And through the years, Louise Crown and Shield made sure that the interpreters at the murder mansion uh, made, didn't mention the murder at all, uh, that it was just presented as the typical wealthy ship merchant's home and no, no mention of, of the, uh, the intrigue of 1830. And um, uh, similarly uh, suppressed material. Uh, the Stephen White, the nephew of the murdered victim, Joseph White, uh, who was very sensitive about the fact that the source of the family wealth came mostly from the slave trade, as conducted by Joseph White, uh, he went so far in his time as to uh, buy up all the copies of a, er, an early Daniel Webster biography that spoke to Daniel Webster's partip participation in the trial and negatively depicted uh, the Whites uh, and uh, bought them all up and had them destroyed and then commissioned the author of the book to rewrite the book, uh, which White had printed at his own expense, uh, uh, in a manner that uh, completely excised all mention of the trial. There's nothing like which, a few connections to uh, push stuff to yeah, the back, right? Yeah, and and the 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 uh, um, influence can, can, has continued down through the ages. Uh, ben Bradley, the editor of the Washington Post, uh, during uh, at the time of the uh, Daniel Ellsberg Pentagon Papers and Watergate, uh, Ben's Ben's middle name was Crown and Shield. It was Benjamin Crown and Shield. Uh, uh, Bradley. Uh, so the families are still very influential. Take us back to 1830 in Salem, Massachusetts. What was life like back then for people living there? Um, and at least in a physical sense, how recognizable would the town of that era be to those of us who have walked its streets today? It would be quite recognizable. Uh, the the uh, the Salem of 1830 was one of the wealthiest cities in the country. Uh, it was on the brink of just beginning to do a decline. Uh, around 1800 in the 1790s, 1800 up until about 1810, it was by far the wealthiest city in the entire con country. Uh, uh, one prominent uh, uh, member of the gentry there, Elias Haskett Derby, was America's first true millionaire. 
and uh, all of the fortunes, all of the great fortunes which dominated Salem at that time were all made in merchant shipping, uh, the China trade and the East India trade. Um, uh, most families like the Crown and Shields and the, the, uh, uh, the Whites owned uh, 10 to 15 vessels that were constantly coming and going, engaged in this, in this uh, commercial venture. And each, each uh, voyage averaged a profit in today's dollars averaged a profit of about $1.3 million. Big okay, money, baby. So we're talking about fantastic wealth. Um, and uh, the, the buildings, as I mentioned, the murder house still stands. Uh, much of the architecture of 1830 Salem is still there down by the waterfront. Um, and... Uh, several of the wharves. Uh, back in the day, back in 1830, there were about 40 or so wharves extending out into the Salem Harbor, and these were owned by the prominent families. There's, a, uh, there's a, a classic, gorgeous George Ropes Jr. painting of the Crown and Shield Wharf, as it was called, uh, with uh, it could accommodate up to 12 vessels, large square rigged vessels at a time. It had three warehouses on it and uh, a counting house. It extended about a half a mile out in, into, the, into the harbor. Um, the Derby Wharf, which remains today, it's one of the few that remains today, uh, the, uh, owned by the aforementioned Elias Haskett Derby, extends just over a half a mile in, into, the, uh, into the harbor. And um, uh, is, you know, it's astonishing to look at it. The, 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 uh, they, these things would take years to build um, and were representative of not just the commerce, but of the wealth behind the commerce in Salem. Now in 1830, Things were starting, just starting to slip uh, because uh, for several reasons, because uh, first of all, because Boston and New York had recently developed excellent railroad uh, connections. So when ships came in, the stuff could be trans tra transported by train to elsewhere, whereas uh, Salem wouldn't get uh, a train connection until about 1838, and then it would just be a connection to Boston. More importantly than that, the latest and best vessels uh, coming off the line were so big that Salem, uh, they, they drew too much water to comfortably use Salem Harbor. Salem Harbor just wasn't deep enough for them. So more and more of the shipping went to, uh, to Boston and to New York. Now the Salem families still own the ships. They just didn't come and go from Salem. How did the witch trials of 1692 impact the culture of those who lived, not today, but who lived in Salem 140 years later in 1830? It impacted them greatly. Uh, uh, because uh, number one, 
the the latter day citizens of Salem always felt as if there was a uh, uh, a pall cast over the the city and its history, given you know the outrages of the uh, witch trials of 1692 and 1693. Also, many of those old families, their ancestors had been involved in the witch scare. Uh, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, who plays a major role in my book, uh, who was uh, uh, an intimate friend of of uh, uh, all the mur murder suspects in, uh, in the crime, uh, was, was a Salem native, was born in Salem in 1804. His family went back many, many, many generations in Salem. Uh, they were all mostly in shipping. Uh, 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 Hawthorne's father uh, died at sea of, of, uh, of uh, at some exotic disease while skippering a, a uh, crown and shield <laughs> vessel um, and um, uh, various uncles and great uncles had been uh, uh, captains of merchant vessels. Hawthorne's great great grandfather John Haythorne it was Hawthorne who put the W it was Nathaniel who put the W in the family name prior to that it had been Haythorne. I like it with the W. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> uh, Nathaniel's great great grandfather John Haythorne was the principal judge in the witch trials, mm -hmm. and a very enthusiastic judge, you know, and sent many a person to the gallows. Who was Joseph White, um, and what um, what was he up to that would have someone? say, this guy needs to be done away with. <laughs> it was up to something. Yeah. Well, um, he certainly was generally loathed in Salem. Uh, Joseph White was uh, 82 at the time of his murder in April of 1830. Um, he uh, had had a very, very long career as a merchant uh, sh uh, shipper uh, in Salem. Uh, was one of the wealthiest men in town. Um, uh, he uh, uh, was a, a, a rather garrulous character. He made enemies very easily. He took offense easily. Uh, he was uh, out for himself and his family to the detriment of all others. He conducted shady business dealings left and right. Uh, um, and slavery and, was outlawed, but it was this open secret in Salem that it was still going on, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was the leader of the pack, Joseph White. Uh, 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 Massachusetts had outlawed slavery in 1783. And um, uh, the United States federal government had outlawed the importation of slaves in 1808. But what Joseph White and a number of other Salem families were doing, and this is part of the reason why they wanted to cover up this uh, activity through the years and this trial related to that activity, uh, what they were doing was um, loading ships with all sorts of worthless trinkets and, and metallurgy and, you know, stuff and, 
and sending them over to the Ivory Coast and exchanging these baubles for human beings. And then they would take the human beings from the Ivory Coast over to the Caribbean, where it wasn't illegal to import slaves and sell them into the Caribbean and South America. Then load up uh, with South American goods that were desirable in the United States and come on back to Salem. And this was a, a key part of the profitability for many, many, many years after there was supposedly no slave trade involving American shipping. And um, not only had White been a leader in this, he was um, also completely unapologetic about it. You know, he, he went on record uh, saying that he would, uh, he had, had no hesitation and no shame about selling one human being to another. You know, he bragged about it, you know. And he was just a generally, you know, kind of loathsome guy. I'm starting you know? not to like this guy the more I hear about it. Um, yeah, yeah, not, uh, not many people were afraid, sad that he got murdered. <laughs> and in fact, it made the early investigation of the murder very problematical because, you, you know, you, the first thing you think of, well, who might have done this, you know, who disliked this guy enough to kill him? And it was a pretty long list. So <laughs> a lot of suspects. Put, put us in that bedroom. Put us in the bedroom. Um, if we were going in there to investigate upon the discovery um, when Benjamin White, uh, his housemate, and I guess nephew, uh, yep. finds the body. Uh, what did Benjamin White find? Where, what was the condition of the body? And what are the basics of what it appears happened? Yes. Uh, uh, Benjamin, who was uh, actually a distant cousin and was sort of the handyman about the house, uh, uh, noticed early, he was the first one up every morning uh, tending to you know the various chores, chores of a household at that time. And uh, he noticed that a window, downstairs window, was ajar uh, and uh, became concerned that there had been some sort of burglary theft. Uh, uh, he looked around. He didn't see anything missing, um, but uh, went upstairs to awaken Joseph White and alert him to, you know, the fact that there may have been an, a home invasion. And he found White... Uh, um, uh, dead in his bed with a severe wound to his head as if he'd been clubbed by, you know, something akin to a baseball bat or something, even though they didn't have baseball bats, bats back then. And with some 17 knife wounds to his chest, covered in blood um, and clearly dead. Um, Benjamin uh, immediately woke up the, the housemaid, the young housemaid, and alerted her to what he'd found, and then uh, went um, um, next door to alert uh, the neighbor, who also happened to be a physician, uh, to uh, get him over, and then proceeded a few blocks away to the home of, of uh, Stephen White, who was 
a, a blood nephew of Joseph White, but also the adopted son of Joseph White, and himself a very prominent guy in Salem and a former member of the Massachusetts uh, General Assembly. And you say this kicks off one of the first, if not the first, American detective stories. What did this have? Why was there such intrigue around this particular murder? And how did it launch this genre? It, it became so prominent and launched that genre because, I mean, murder, you know, happened all the time, that, you know, then as now. Uh, but it was usually uh, rough and tumble trade, waterfront types, sailors getting in the fights and knifing each other. You know, it, it was not a rare occurrence to find a body floating in Salem Harbor after a, a, a rowdy night in Salem. Uh, but what made this uh, uh, so prominent uh, a, a, a crime was, number one, the prominence of the individual. You know, uh, uh, this, you know this is a, as if, uh, uh, you know, Andrew Mellon had been found murdered, you know, or, you know. Or, or, you know, maybe Elon Musk. I, I don't know. You know, this guy was very wealthy. Um, and add to that the complete lack of, of, of uh, at first, of viable suspects, viable theories as to, because one, one aspect of the crime was that, yes, Joseph White was laying there murdered, Nothing had been stolen uh, that anyone could detect in the household. There were gold doubloons on the table in White's bedroom that had been left there. So, what? Why would you do this if you weren't going to at least take your, to, you know, help yourself to the gold? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and um, uh, the the only thing that seemed to have been taken was uh, there had been a. a a, a chest, a locker under White's bed uh, in which he had jewelry and other valuables, but also a, a sworn copy of his last will and testament. For some reason, the last will and testament had been taken, but none of the other valuables. Hmm. Um, um, the initial investigation of the body seemed, I was a little surprised reading through it. It seemed to be relatively thorough for uh, uh, such a primitive time. I mean, the 1830s are not exactly uh, the high point of medicine uh, in this country or in the world. Um, yep. So it was interesting to read how they investigated the body. But once we got beyond that, Salem does not exactly have a CSI-like operation, <laughs> at least back in the 1830s. No, yeah, nor did any other town. Really, right, right, know. exactly. Right. Um, there was no. And, yeah, I mean, they had a couple of constables who were in charge of making sure doors were locked at night and maybe getting a drunk, you know, off the street. You know, that was about it. Uh, uh, so, uh, what happened was Stephen White, the nephew and adopted son, formed what he called a uh, committee of vigilance, uh, led by leading leading uh, 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 citizens of Salem, that which almost became sort of a, a de facto ad hoc grand jury, if you will, self-appointed, uh, to investigate 
what had happened, you know, and, and to probe uh, around the edges of this story and try to figure out what was going on. And bear in mind, at first, everyone was suspect. Hell, Steve, Stephen White, as the principal beneficiary of Joseph White's will, was under suspicion himself for a bit, you know. Um, we just did an episode with the great J.D. Dickey um, about uh, violence in the 1830s in America and how the abolitionist movement movement um, was basically countered by violence at every turn. Um, you're writing about the same decade. How did what's happening in your story in 1830s Salem reflect what was happening across America in the 1830s? It 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 reflected what was happening in that it revealed a, a fundamental tension for starters between uh, increasingly loud, vociferous, uh, anti-slavery people and uh, those who were, uh, you know, generally not too concerned about it, you know. Uh, and uh, the, 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 the whites were, you know, notorious for, uh, you know, not being real, you know, sympathetic to an abolitionist cause or not being opposed to it so much either as, you know, just being completely indifferent. It didn't impact their uh, uh, business anymore at all as far as do domestic American slavery was concerned. Um, um, uh, it, it, and this investigation, though, brought together strange bedfellows. There were, there were a lot of guys who Stephen White made sure to get onto the Committee of Vigilance with whom he had very little in common politically, but uh, with whom he had a great deal in common when it came to what, wishing to maintain order and and see that uh, you know the murders of of, uh, of prominent individuals such as themselves uh, didn't go unpunished or uninvestigated. Uh, they had that in common. And uh, what drove the investigation eventually that uh, this all happened within a few weeks was of uh, the uh, the White family putting in a thousand dollars for a reward, which was money at the time the uh, 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 town of Salem putting up uh, $500 for an award, reward and other parties pooling funds and adding another thousand. So there was a $2,500 uh, reward for information leading to the arrest and prosecution of suspects in this matter. Um, and uh, so, some uh, unsavory characters who knew a bit about what had gone on started coming out of woodwork. Before we get to the ins and outs of the investigation, I just want to ask, um, Nathaniel Hawthorne and Daniel Webster are part of your uh, your title page and a part of the title itself. Um, yeah. uh, names we know, of course, um, Nathaniel Hawthorne was a college friend of uh, Franklin Pierce, the future president. He wrote his campaign biography. A, a, nothing like a little propaganda from your college roommate, right? Um, also, a uh, a storied. Uh, I hope my college roommates don't write any campaign biographies. For me. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. 
they got nothing but good things to say, I'm sure. Um, uh, what was Nathaniel Hawthorne's exposure to Salem's dark side? Um, and how did all this shape his future as a writer? Uh, uh, he, Nathaniel grew up with, with this uh, sort of dark uh, history, uh, this veil of, of, uh, of the past hovering over him, uh, especially given the fact of his great-great-grandfather's involvement with, with the uh, witch trials. And uh, he was always, he always thought very deeply about um, the Puritan history of, of Salem and, uh, and thought it ironic, very ironic about how the, the, the descendants of these uh, Spartan living Puritans uh, uh, who, you know, thought just about any degree of fun was a sin, how these descendants had c come around to the fact that, you know, it was nice to live in a big mansion with servants and uh, uh, it was okay to make a fortune. And uh, not always through, uh, you know, wonderful uh, practices. And, um, and uh, that, uh, uh, it was okay that there was a you know a, a whorehouse down by the waterfront to keep the uh, to the sailors and you know occupied while they were in port, and uh, uh, um, and uh, just the sort of high living and 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 uh, edgy uh, uh, entertainments and existences which would have dri driven the, the Puritan founders of of Salem. Absolutely nuts. Yeah, we're out of here. Um, how did Daniel Webster get dragged into this? Obviously a storied American life. Uh, what was he up to at this point as um, 1830 comes around and this murder happens and how does he get dragged into the beef of what is going on here? Yeah. Uh, uh, Nathaniel, uh, Webster was at the time a sitting senator from Massachusetts and already famed nationwide as an orator, the, the great Daniel Webster. Um, uh, he was a close friend of Stephen White, the uh, nephew and adopted son of Joseph White. Um, when it came to the trial of the culprits, I, there's a bit of a backstory here. Uh, uh, Richard and uh, George Crown and Shield were of, of the Crown and Shield clan that I alluded to earlier, with these two sort of nefarious scions, uh, were brought up on charges with Richard being charged as the principal in the crime, the, the fellow who actually went into the house and murdered with his own hands, Joseph White. Um, and uh, two other fellows, uh, uh, Joe and uh, Frank Knapp, two, two other brothers, were charged with uh, inciting this and soliciting and financing this crime by the Crown and Shields. At the time, in of Massachusetts law, um, if the principle of a crime wasn't convicted, then 
no accessory to the crime could be, be charged. That's the way the law was structured. Uh, Richard Crown and Shield had been charged as, as the principal, and uh, there was significant evidence against him, uh, and he knew that he was going to be convicted, and that once convicted, he would be hung. He uh, consulted a bunch of law books. He had a bunch of law books de delivered to his room, uh, his cell at the Salem jail, and uh, consulted with one of the attorneys involved with the case, Franklin Dexter, and confirmed the, this theory of the law that, you know, if he was removed as principal, then there could be no charges against accessories, his brother George being one of them and Joe and Frank Knapp being the others. Um, and so Richard uh, hung himself in his cell just took himself out, thinking that this would end it for the other guys. Since he was going to die anyway, he just took himself out and uh, thought this would be the solution for the other fellows. Um, he was wrong uh, because uh, Attorney General Perez Morton of the state of Massachusetts simply charged uh, Frank Knapp, who had been outside the house keeping lookout, as a second degree principle and uh, uh, proceeded with the trial. It was going to be a very slippery piece of rhetoric in court to get a jury to uh, interpret the law of the state of Massachusetts regarding principle and accessories uh, in, in favor of the charge, uh, since Frank had previously been charged as an accessory. Stephen White had absolutely no faith in Perez Morton's ability to argue this in court. Uh, he had complete faith in Daniel Webster's ability to argue anything. So on his own dime, he paid Webster, uh, who for all his fame and all his eloquence was always broke, uh, paid Webster a thousand bucks to lead the prosecution. Uh, and that's how Webster came into the picture. What was it like to be in Salem during this case? Daniel Webster himself has shown up. There is intrigue about who did this and why. Um, there are all these, you know, things that we're so familiar with seeing in, in today's day and age. I mean, I am a journalist and I've covered all kinds of big cases where it feels like the whole weight of the world, all the attention of, of the world is on a particular town, and oftentimes it's a small town. Um, what was it like to be in Salem as all of this attention and all of these people came to find out what was going to happen in this trial? You know, we're, we're all always talking about the trial of the century, aren't we? Right. The, whether it's the Lindbergh baby or O.J. Simpson or what have you. Um, and, um, but in 1830, this was the trial of the century. Uh, uh, you had uh, these famous, famous, incredibly wealthy families uh, involved. You had this notorious murder of a very, very prominent individual. You had this rock star of a prosecuting attorney, Nathaniel, uh, uh, Daniel Webster, uh, coming to court. Uh, it was quite the scene. The press came from all over to cover it. Um, 
the uh, there were lines to get into the courtroom, uh, and uh, when people couldn't, the people who couldn't get into the courtroom were uh, climbing ladders to look peer into the window of the court. To everyone, wanted to, everyone wanted to hear the oratory of the magnificent Webster. And everyone wanted to uh, uh, follow the pace of this this trial. Uh, the the publicity uh, was uh, truly something. Uh, James Gordon Bennett, uh, the la later to be a very very famous editor and newspaper publisher, as a young reporter, was sent from New York to cover it. Uh, and uh, he said the crowds outside the courthouse just seemed to be coming in waves. Uh, and uh, so it, it disrupted the whole town, while at the same time was something of a financial boon for the town, for the merchants and shopkeepers, and especially the saloon keepers. Whenever I wind up somewhere like this, I'm always buying stuff at uh, the local stores and the subway and the hotels and the whole thing. Um, right. Uh, I don't know how much you want to say about I don't want I don't want to ruin your book here and the the, the findings of the the trial um but uh, I, there are lots of twists twists and turns in the case um which we've gone over a little bit of but um Daniel Webster gives an iconic closing statement so maybe focus on that and then feel free to say who did it or not I don't want to ruin your book so you oh. you go as we we want people to buy the book right so we right, go as far right. as it, it takes people before they get so curious, they have to pick up a copy. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, yes, uh, Daniel Webster's summation in this trial was really a piece of beautiful work. Daniel Webster argued that although Dick Crowninshield had never been formally convicted in a court, uh, as a principal, as the principal in the murder of Joseph White, he can, had convicted himself by his suicide. He said that suicide itself is a confession, and and that he had thus been convicted in the, the minds of man and 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 in the sight of God, and therefore the trial of uh, accessories as principles was uh, uh, appropriate, you know, and, and punishment to the full hilt of the law. Uh, this was uh, reinforced by the fact that uh, um, it turned out that John, uh, Joe and Frank Knapp had incited the crime. Uh, Richard Crowninshield had no thought of murdering Joseph White until uh, uh, Frank and uh, Joe Crowninshield offer him a thousand dollars to do it. Uh, you know, so uh, in a in uh, so they were you know quite guilty themselves, and. Um, um, and uh, Daniel Webster's rhetoric, uh, although it at first resulted in a hung jury in the first trial of Frank Knapp, he was the first one to go on trial because he had stood guard outside the house while Dick Crowninshield was upstairs murdering White. Uh, the first trial ended in a hung jury, uh, but there was immediately a second trial 
and uh, and uh, Webster won the day in that case, a unanimous verdict and a sentence uh, of death uh, by hanging for Frank. Um, and uh, Webster was equally uh, eloquent in in uh, uh, charging and and uh, prosecuting uh, and getting a conviction on on uh, 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 Joe Knapp. How uh, did both- this? How did this case impact the future of writing in this country? So many people were inspired by it. I think, including Oliver Wendell Holmes, was somebody. So, um, mm-hmm. how um, do we see the echoes of this case in our pop culture today, and in the stories that we are interested in in today's day and age? A hundred and gosh, almost a hundred ninety years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, many leading uh, critics. Uh, uh, and experts on Hawthorne see uh, wrinkles of this trial throughout the the works of Hawthorne. Um, uh, yeah, uh, in in the language of uh, uh, such stories as the Minister's Black Veil, uh, you see uh, uh, you hear echoes of of, of Webster's. Uh, incantation of the he's he t- spoke in his in his summary about the uh the the uh, uh truth of the crime pounding away within richard crown and shield's heart uh and and being his only escape being suicide and you know you have the minister in the black veil who is covering his own sins, uh, and uh, also in Hawthorne, uh, 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 many critics cite uh, the uh, the same passages from Webster's uh, summation in in the final speech of Reverend Dimmonsdale in the Scarlet Letter. Uh, when he's confronting the fact that that he has uh, fornicated with Hester Prynne and fathered her illegitimate <laughs> child, um, uh, also uh, scholars uh, of Edgar Allan Poe uh, have traced letters uh, of his where he says uh, 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 that uh, uh, the same passage from Webster influenced his tale, The Telltale Heart, where the guy has murdered someone and buried them under the floorboards and hears the pounding of the heart, that the incessant guilt that won't go away. Mm. Uh, uh, so it has played through, you know, many aspects of, of American literature through the years. Um, and, uh, you know, and, uh, and then you have... Uh, the famous tale, uh, short story, The Devil and Daniel Webster, uh, which was published in the uh, 1930s, I believe. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, the f- famous tale where uh, there's the farmer who has sold his soul to Satan, uh, and it's time for Satan to come and collect. And the farmer hires Daniel Webster to, to uh, defend him to, and uh, get him out of this. And uh, Webster dares the uh, Satan when he comes to uh, a debate and offer, offers to let Salem, uh, uh, to let uh, Satan 
uh, use his own minions from hell. He can choose from his own minions of hell for the uh, jury. And, and uh, uh, so he, Satan brings up Attila the Hun and all these terrible people. And the judge that he brings up from hell is Judge John Haythorne. Hmm. Americans love a good circus, apparently. We certainly learned that from this book. Um, what can we learn about, um, how can we be more responsible when these circuses descend upon us again, or we descend upon the circus? Um, <laughs> uh, 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 what can we learn about being more responsible in treating the people involved in a more dignified fashion and in reporting on these cases in more helpful ways? Yeah, I, I don't know because so often the people involved, you know, I hate to say it, but so often the people involved are themselves not, you know, not too dignified, you know, if you will. Uh, uh, and going today, you know, with, uh, I don't know, look at, uh, you know, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, you know, and all this dirty laundry that we all get to listen to. Uh, but uh, back in the day, now, you know, the only party to this crime who got off was George Crowninshield, Dick Crowninshield's brother, uh, who, although he had facilitated communications and such and introduced people to one another, uh, on the night of the murder, uh, uh, he produced witnesses and two witnesses in court uh, uh, to d document the fact that uh, give him his alibi and state clearly that on the night of the murder, he had been elsewhere. And the place where he had been was in the whorehouse, which he owned, in bed with two of his employees. <laughs> he produced these two prostitutes <laughs> to give him I, I have alibi. an alibi, don't I? Here they are. Talk about dirty laundry, but yeah, it worked. Here are my well. alibis. He worked um, for me, went on to live a long and prosperous life, died a very wealthy man in the 1880s, left a fortune. Do you wrestle at all with the question of whether Joseph White deserved this? Um, murder, I would assume, is a terrible thing to have happened to oneself, particularly in this brutal fashion. Um, but he was a slave trader. Um, yeah. Have you rectified that in your own mind as someone who studied this case so closely? I, I personally don't have much sympathy for the man. You know, um, but I'm I'm also short on sympathy for the people who killed him. Yeah, I I, I don't think there were too many saints involved in this uh, this whole fiasco. What's it like for you um, to be a ghost writer? I've I've wanted to know this for such a long time. Uh, writers inherently have to put themselves out there. Um, right. You've written seven books on your own, so it's not as if you're a super private writer. But what is it like? Um, what is your process to um, take a, an entire persona on as you write a book in someone yeah. else's name? Well, first of all, the ghostwriting I do is entirely nonfiction, you know, um, and it's usually in the form of a memoir, you know, and it's usually some uh, prominent person, not necessarily prominent internationally or even nationally, but a person who at least is prominent in a specific field, you know. Um, and you interview and them for a couple I days interview or them, uh, for quite a bit. Uh, uh, and uh, Zoom is very, very yeah. handy. Um, 
and uh, and uh, bounce drafts back and forth. And uh, often it's people. Many of my clients are would be completely capable of writing it themselves. They're just too damn busy. I love that excuse. I would totally do it, but I'm just too busy. Can you write this for me? I love that excuse. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to use that for all kinds of things now. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's kind of good. I find it liberating because I know my name's not going to be on it. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, what is next for you? Am I allowed to ask what you're working on next? I'm, I don't have a book project for my own name at the moment. I don't have any good ideas, but I have, uh, but nevertheless, I have four books that I'm writing. So oh my gosh, I'm rather busy. Let's, um, let's wrap things up this way. I want to ask um, the next time we're in Salem, Massachusetts, or the next time someone goes there, um, how should, or should even someone pay homage to the folks involved in this case? Uh, should there be a quick beer with a toast? To the people involved, or is this a case where we go, we're glad this guy got killed, and we're sorry that there was uh, such suffering on the hands of other people involved, or not? I'd say pay homage by, I wouldn't drink a toast to any of these guys, but uh, you could pay homage by visiting the sites that are still there. Go, you go take a tour of the murder house, and... Uh, uh, and and visit the jail. The, the the jail is no longer a jail, but it's still there. It's now luxury apartments. That's funny. Uh, Did any better than the jail in eighteen thirty? In the eighteen thirties, I bet. Um, oh, did oh, anything? Bet. Yeah. Did you did bet. anything? Did anything good come out of this? Not not really. I mean, book uh, sales for you. Oh yeah yeah. <laughs> But nothing There's else. That. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, the, the, it didn't really change the fortunes of any of the families at all. Uh, you know, they they stayed wealthy. They were going to be wealthy before this. They stayed wealthy after it. Um, uh, and uh, really, nothing. No major repercussions uh, through the years. It really doesn't echo uh, in the families, uh, but they're all still around. Uh, I'm in Rhode Island here. I'm 12 miles from Newport. The uh, harbor, uh, the assistant harbor master in Newport here is uh, the current George Crowninchill. Wow. That's <laughs> so cool. they're still on the water. <laughs> Edward Renahan, the author of Deliberate Evil, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Daniel Webster, and the 1830 murder of a Salem slave trader. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Evan. Thank you for having me. Check out the book. Check out his website, which is edwardrenahan.com. He's on social media at twitter.com slash ed underscore Renahan. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History, and Today conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.